The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we bow ourselves before you and we confess with our mouths the truth that overflows from our heart that truly you are Lord. You are Lord of all creation and you are Lord of our lives. For we have come to you in faith and repentance and believed upon you. We've trusted in your work on the cross to redeem us, to cover our sin to purchase for us forgiveness and eternal life. And we come before you this morning, Lord, not on the basis of our own good deeds, not on the merit of our own righteousness, but we come before you only by the work that you've done in our place, by your shed blood for us. And we proclaim you as Lord this day. And we hear the words of the Apostle Paul, words that you placed upon his heart to record for us for all eternity. And we're reminded, Lord, of our own hearts in light of your righteousness. We're reminded of our own sinfulness. We know because we know ourselves better than we know anyone else how often we are tempted to pride. We know how rivalry and conceit can well up within us. We know that it doesn't come naturally to us to Look out for the needs of others and care for someone else's needs and regard that as more important than our own. So this morning, Lord, even as we reflect on this very week since we've last been together to worship, we can see seeds of these things in our hearts. And so we come before you this morning in these quiet moments and we confess our sin. We recognize and admit how far we fall short of your glory and your perfect righteousness. We seek your forgiveness, and we know that as we seek it, you'll grant it because you've promised us in your word. We confess our sin. You're faithful and you're just. You'll forgive us. You'll wipe the slate clean. You'll bury our sins in the depths of the ocean. And so we come before you in repentance and confession, Lord, with that confidence in our heart. And we come before you this morning with a, a desire to to hear your voice, with a desire that you would 
illuminate your word in our in our midst, that you would make it come alive, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, apply to our hearts and to our homes the truths that we'll hear. That your word might plant deep within us and bear much, much fruit. This is your time, Lord, and we've gathered in your name, and we pray that you would help us, Lord, to give our full attention to your word this morning. Cause to drift from our minds thoughts of anything else but you. Father, we're grateful for Tim Bryant and for his willingness to come and share with us this morning. We're grateful for the ministry of Low Country Biblical Counseling Center and how you've used that ministry to help hundreds and hundreds of people around the Low Country in these last 14 years. We pray your blessing on him and on the ministry, particularly on his teaching of your word this morning as he comes. Speak to us this morning, Lord, for we're listening. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thankful to be here with you today. And my name is Tim Bryant. And I heard that you're used to long sermons. Amen. <laughs> oh, well, we will pray that the Lord will have grace upon you and me as we get into this topic, because this is an awesome opportunity uh, to share from this great passage and in light of marriage, and particularly applying this one to marriage. Um, no, no doubt, though, someone did say to me when I was here for Greg's ordination that they were looking for a good church, and they saw online that the sermon just said they thought one minute and 15 seconds was long. They said, well, I'm not going to go to a church that only preaches one minute and 15 seconds. And then they clicked on it, and you know it was an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> so, But we're going to be talking about the cure for conflict and also the cause for unity. This really comes from an uh, eight-part workshop we do, Unity and Conflict. And this is the best part where we apply more specifically the mind of Christ to conflict. Some of you went to a marriage uh, conference yesterday here at the church, uh, some of the couples. And as you walk away, you need to be careful, though, not to let something that was so unifying end ironically in a greater disunity and conflict. How could that happen, right? Marriages conferences can raise the expectations high of what your marriage should be like and often um, what it should, will be like because maybe the spouse said, I'm going to change, I'm going to work on some things. And so this is what can happen. We have the expectations. and Go ahead and we have these expectations. Uh, and I remember a few years ago, that we did a conference and someone in the middle of that uh, conference actually raised their hand and said, I want everything you're saying. Me and my husband are going to do that. And her, her husband did indeed agree that this is something that I need to be doing different. And she agreed there are things she needs to be doing different. But um, then what happened was this, right? The reality uh, just ahead, right? Monday happened. And... Uh, we were talking about the model marriage, and they wanted to have that. But James 4.1 says why we do this. Um, why is it? Because what is the source of quarrels and conflict among you? It's your desires that wage war in you. You could say your expectations that wage war in you. And it's sad but true, but this uh, couple unfortunately ended up uh, separating a few months after. It was a sad moment uh, in that. But 
just want to use this sermon to help some of you who have your expectations raised to not let that become what James 4 one says, a cause for conflict, that your expectations... Um, our expectations should be different. We should not use the information from the Word to go into conflict, but like it says in 2 Timothy 1, the goal of the marriage conference and instruction should be what? Love, not greater expectation, love. The goal of all instruction is love. Um, The reality is this, and this is what we're going to be talking of today and dealing with, is there are differences and depravity that's going to occur in marriage this side of heaven. Um, Paul Tripp wrote a book called What Do You What Did You Expect? Um, my wife and I read that and got depressed, and so we put that book away. So we we found a we found a letter B, a, a second choice, and it was by Dave Harvey, who spoke at our fellowship dinner this year, called uh, When Sinners Say I Do. These are really exciting topics, aren't they, <laughs> for marriage? But uh, that was a good one as well. Differences and depravity in marriage are inevitable. Um, It's going to happen. But conflict is optional. And people are going to have different dislikes and likes because of their backgrounds, because of their personalities, uh, because of their weaknesses and their strengths. And when these two opposing differences uh, are stark contrast, then you're going to have sparks. You're going to have issues that come up. Here's some classic examples in counseling that... um, I have experienced in counseling people. A doer marries a thinker. Can you imagine the sparks that could fly there, right? A saver marries a spender. A man who grew up on a farm marries a girl who grew up in a mansion. Do you understand what could happen there? A Pentecostal marries a Presbyterian. Now that's the worst kind right there. A man marries a woman. Do we say more? Do we need to say more? Differences are inevitable. These differences uh, also sometimes they become uh, what we have said depravity. Uh, one, not just one man marries one woman, but one sinner marries another sinner, even if they are being progressively changed as a Christian. There still is indwelling sin to some level, uh, pervasive, not per- as pervasive as it was, but progressing out of that. Um, and Depravity occurs in a marriage repeatedly in areas that they're most valuable things uh, that they cherish. Those James 4.1 desires are big, and you're going to have bigger conflict. Uh, I think about conflict as it's testing the foundation of a marriage, much like an earthquake, if you think of it. And there's five categories of earthquake, but we're not going to go through those today, but we're going to go through uh, just briefly, this idea that there could be three different kinds of, of, of uh, earthquakes uh, threatening the foundation of your marriage. Level one, I would call it uh, disappointment, the disappointment level. It's noticed by few people when they have a Category 1 uh, earthquake. No likelihood that damage will occur. And this could be uh, my husband said he was going to, to put the kids to bed at night. That's what he said yesterday, and he didn't do it last night. And so we've already had a fallout on that, maybe. My husband said he was going to pray, and he's not praying. Wife said she was going to try to keep the house more clean, and she's not. Those are disappointing at times, demanding sometimes. But there's a discouragement level, too, that we could call into, fall into. And 
the husband who keeps taking for granted maybe the wife's help and from time to time yells at her. Not all the time, but enough to where it's not resolving. It's not getting anywhere. And in time, that disappointment can grow and this discouragement can grow. And then the level three would be a damaging level. This is where there could be adultery or physical abuse or pornography, anything of the bigger damaging level um, that happens. So here today, you might be in any one of these. Um, so the real question is, though, what do you do with this? Uh, question mark there, the next slide. How do you respond to the differences in depravity? That's the question. Uh, does God give us sufficient answers for that? Do we have the motivation to, to apply those? Uh, what do we do with these expectations? That's really your answer, your question. Not what do you do with your spouse first. What do I do with my expectations? And James 4:10 says where we're going to end today. And it says that we should, what should we do is humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord when we're in conflict. That's the context. With an expectation of exaltation. With anticipating that God is going to exalt us better than our spouse could. And so we will humble our expectations. It doesn't mean we get rid of all of them, but we respond to disappointments and discouragement differently because we have humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So let me pray for us as we look at Philippians 2 now. Father, thank you for this time. We pray that your spirit will strengthen us to know and respond more obediently and effective to the spouse that you have given us, that we will respond more obedient and effectively to the spouse that you've given us. Father, you, in all of your providence, have provided for us a spouse that is tailor-made for various areas of our life. We may never experience all the good that you wanted in this side of heaven and marriage. But, Father, we will experience all the sanctification if we will humble ourselves. And that will be a gain that will influence our spouse in some good ways, maybe not totally, but that will also create an internal blessing in us, an eternal blessing, an internal blessing of change into the very mind that we most value, the mind of Jesus Christ. The great gain is there for us. Help us to open our eyes by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's what catches me first about this passage, is that it's radical commands. It leaves no wiggle room. Look at this. Uh, this is the phrase I want you to walk away with. We're going to build around Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 5, if you have that there. Um, and if you have your Bible, let's turn there as well. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And so it, it says this, do nothing. Did you hear what it just said? Do what? That's pretty radical, isn't it? I guess I have to stop breathing. Some, think about that. Do nothing out of what? Selfishness or empty conceit. But in humility of mind, consider others uh, better than yourselves. Do not look out for your own interest only, but the interest of others. In typical New Testament fashion, we have a radical put-off here with a radical put-on 
but can only be motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives, by the truth of Christ being communicated to us. Biblical change is not just stopping something as we see. It's not just putting off selfishness and empty conceit, but it's putting on humility of mind, considering others better than yourself. Um, We're putting off selfish and vainglory and putting on the humility of considering others better than yourself and looking out for the interest of others. This is very similar to so many radical commands in the Scripture to call us to unity, to call us to promote it. And Ephesians 4, 1 to 3 is one of those. Therefore, listen to this one, I, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you or beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. With all, and here it is, here's how you respond horizontally to the amazing vertical blessing of Christ in your life. Here it is, the first step out with all, and not just some, but all, humility. There's another radical thought, isn't it? How much humility? All. There's your weapon. All humility, all gentleness, all patience, all forbearance, diligent to preserve unity. Can't produce unity in your marriage, but you can preserve it. You can promote it. And that's the call. Another one would be maybe this radical, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, 12 and 13. As those who have been chosen, holy and beloved. Okay, now I've been chosen, holy and beloved. How do you want me to respond to this? Do you want me to, to sing a song the rest of my life? Yes, but practically out of that song that you're singing, I want you to put on a heart of compassion, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone. That's a pretty big assignment, just as the Lord forgave you. And then one of my favorite would be First uh, Peter chapter 3. As this is Fisherman Peter summarizing up what Paul takes two chapters to do. He can do it in ten words or less. Listen to this. First Peter chapter 3. To sum up, all of you, all of you, be harmonious. Be sympathetic. Be brotherly, be kind-hearted, be humble in spirit. Don't return evil for evil, insult for insult, but instead give a blessing because you were called to inherit a blessing. So I I want you to deal with disappointments and hurts in relationships in light of this radical command. Do nothing out of selfishness, but everything in humility. It's a tough sell. And so in the context, Paul does what Paul does often. He lays out the motivational context for why should we do so much like that? Why should we offer ourselves on the altar like that? Why should I give up my 60 to 80 years of possibilities, of potential, and humble myself under the interest of others? Why should I give my best dreams to to the dreams of another, maybe my spouse. Why should I do that? It's a tough sell. Now, this is what Paul starts with in verse 1 of chapter 2. Look at this. Philippians 2.1 Therefore, if there is any what? Encouragement in being united or in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship, if any affection. Isn't that interesting? He's saying any how many times? Any, then if, if there is any, then I want you to do all. Right? If there is any, here's what um, 
John MacArthur writes about this, this verse here. He says the idea of encouragement is to come alongside and help. And our beloved Lord does for his own this. He consoles them with exhortation, with his love. It portrays the Lord coming close and whispering words of gentle cheer and tender counsel in a believer's ear. Whispering words of gentle cheer and tender counsel in a believer's ear. If you have any of that, Paul says, then do nothing from now on in relationship to your spouse or others out of selfishness or empty conceit, but rather consider them better than you because your Lord has done that for you. It is as if God is saying in all these passages, I want you, are you willing to deal with your spouse's sin the way I have dealt with your sin? Would you like me to continue to deal with your weakness and your sin the way I have always, through the cross, through grace, as I speak truth and work patiently in your life? Or would you like me to use your methods? (laughs) We wouldn't like that. And it's not very effective. Paul knows this is a difficult command, so it's like he's, 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 um, he's presenting a rhetorical statement. If you have a minuscule amount, even a little bitty, bitty piece of encouragement or fellowship in the Spirit or consolation of love, anything at all, then let that be motivational for you to obey verse 3 and 5. When is the last time you experienced what... Paul is saying here. Or if it helps you, when is the last time you have experienced what MacArthur said, quote, the Lord whispering in your ear that he loves you, that he's going to take care of your interest, that he hung the stars so he can handle your welfare. Because look at the cross. If he did not spare his own son for us, but gave him for us all freely, how will he not also with him give us all things, right? When is the last time that you and I have experienced the consolation of the love that comes through the gospel? Maybe it just happened when we sang these songs, right? Maybe you sing the songs and you get no consolation. This is a problem because Paul would say that you have to be renewed day by day in order to live the commands out. He does not. God does not call us to live by faith what only faith can perform. And so he calls upon us to renew our mind and primarily in light of his gospel, in light of the cross. Don't you see it all through the scripture in Corinthians, in Ephesians, in this one, in Philippians? So how glorious it is when two married people are being renewed daily in the consolation of his love and then go put each other above themselves. What a perfect world, right? It's not going to happen this side of heaven every day, every moment. And some people are here in Category 3 earthquakes where it's not happening most of the time. Maybe some of you Category 2, half the time your spouse seems to consider you above themselves. And that makes you easier to consider them. Some of you, maybe 20% of the time they don't consider you. And 80% of the time they're doing well. But the point is, Paul is calling you to do it. He's calling you to be consoled by his love, quieted by his love in the gospel, so that you can then do nothing out of selfishness. 
So let's look. Let's just talk about selfishness, vainglory for a moment. Put what we're to put off. These are big things. So let's have that other slide up there. Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, vainglory. Um, here we're talking about, uh, literally, the Greek word is talking about a day laborer. Work done merely for hire out of personal gain. Put that off. You're not looking to be paid by your spouse before you do something for them. God has already taken care of your needs and your, your future. It's a selfish gain. It's a, I want for me. And there's a piece to this in the Greek word that is rivalry, and that's why the ESV translates it rivalry. It's selfish desire that leads to conflict, leads to struggle, much like the election we just saw in 2016, right? That had to come in here somewhere, right? The election, the conflict, the rivalry. I want to look good, and so I'm going to, I want to gain for me, and so I'm going to take from you. I'm going to get, try to get something from you. Um, It's not for God's glory and gain. Jesus Christ often brought a sword brought a dividing point because he was the word incarnate he was truth but even in that did Jesus Christ ever seek his own glory in fact he said repeatedly I don't come to seek my own glory I seek the glory for the father and then his mouth spoke right and he spoke out of concern for us he spoke out of desire to help us not out of I am tired and I want a little convenience here guys I'm sick of this he never said that did he I want Now, that's selfishness. Now, let's add selfishness to this other word that we must put off, empty conceit. Uh, Without going into too much detail about empty conceit, what does it sound like to you? What does empty conceit sound like? It comes right before the other word in this phrase, but with humility. The opposite of humility is pride. Where selfishness is a desire in this this passage, uh, empty conceit is a belief. So you get this desire I want and this belief, and here's how I'd like you to think about this belief, I deserve. When you get I want that and I deserve that together, you get nothing of Christ, right? I want. Now it's okay to want, right? Some wants are good. I want us to pray more as a, as a couple. I want to be treated more kindly. That's, that's a good want. But when I want gets in bed with I deserve, you know what happens? We call that idolatry. We call that James 4.1. The source of quarrels and conflict is your inordinate desires. What makes my desires inordinate often is my pride. And that's why Paul in this passage goes to our put on which is but with all, with humility of mind. Uh, selfish gain and empty pride equal uh, pro- uh, conflict. Now, pride justifies what selfishness desires. It's a lethal combination. Um, let's ask the question, though. What do I deserve? 
Now, only if you're a Christian can you answer that question like the Apostle Paul. I would go to Romans chapter 7, verse 18 and say this. I would say, um, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And then chapter Romans 7, 25 says, O wretched man that I am, who will save me? What did Paul think he deserved? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the chief or foremost. Now, if I take that into a situation where I'm in my marriage where I want something, and it's a good want, let's say, and I say to myself, first of all, I am the chief of sinners. Now the want is submitted to good theology. Where Paul says this should be fully accepted. And now the want is not idol level. Let me tell you a story about my idol. Can I tell you a story about my idol? I have some physical complications with health. They're getting much better. Greg, your pastor, was a godsend. He told me about four weeks ago that he found a way to get a CPAP machine. And uh, I didn't think I had sleep apnea, but my wife had said she thought I did. So I went and got tested. Actually, this was a couple months ago. Got tested, started on a CPAP machine, doing a lot better now. I'm feeling alive for the first time in several years. It's an amazing reality. There's some other complications with digestion I've had for years. All that to say, there was a time when I worshipped Rice Dream. Does anyone know what Rice Dream is? Yeah, like what in the world? It's a milk substitute that tastes really good. That's all you need to know. So in the morning and breakfast during those years, I would have rice dream with everything I ate. You know, it was a wonderful complement to everything. I had, but there was my other breakfast, rice cakes and cashew butter. That sounds good. Uh, with rice dream, okay? Rice dream was important. It gave the sweetness to it all, okay? So I was here in 2001. So this was years ago when I was a real bad sinner and a big idolater too. And I was here in 2001. We were looking to see if we, the Lord would start a ministry here. We started in 2003. But 2001, 2002, we came and visited. We took inventory, visited some churches, prayed. And on the, uh, on the way home, right after worship service, heart overflowing, I did not do any, everything in humility. Okay? On the way home, I said, turned to my wife, and I said, as we're driving in the car, a 15-hour drive back to Chicago. So it's a long drive, okay? Actually, I just said 15. You have to speed to get there in 15. Frank's shaking his head. It was really about 18 hours, okay? Uh, but we're, we're going back to Chicago, and about 30 minutes into that trip, I turned to my wife and said, Honey, um, I'm ready to eat breakfast. Can you get me the rice cream? And she looked at me, you know, like, uh-oh. You know that uh-oh look? And I said, what? She said, I forgot to pick up rice cream yesterday. Now, you think, oh my goodness, are you going to get carnal here? Yes, I got carnal. I didn't yell. I just got quiet. Anyone ever just get quiet? I just get quiet. And I drove in quietness until Tennessee. Seven hours. Quietness. Very small talk. And I got, uh, you know, uncomfortable with the quietness. So about Columbia or Greenville, I put on a little tape on overcoming selfishness 
Now, what in the world, right? Well, that was for my wife, right? She should, I don't know, I didn't do that. She should think and consider others better instead of forgetting. So here we are driving, and I refused. I went on a hunger fast. I didn't eat breakfast. Because who's going to eat rice cakes and cashew butter without rice cream? Come on. I wanted her to feel the sense that this is not right. What had happened is selfishness, desire for self, I want rice cream, became I demand rice cream. I'm going to punish without it, with quietness, because I believed I what? Deserved it. Now, the, the thief, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, the tax collector uh, and the Pharisee parable. Jesus told this parable for those who looked down on others and thought themselves to be more right. I was doing that right then, wasn't I? I thought myself to be more right, righteous in myself, self-righteousness, and looking down on her. And it says that the tax gatherer wasn't that way at all. He looked up to heaven and he said, Father, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, that's where we're taught humility. is when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That changes everything in our relationships if we will renew our mind in the fact that God took a sinner who was wretched and he gave him sonship status and the riches of heaven of things to come and the power and work of the Spirit in his life and he tastes the goodness of God and then the tax collector how can you after receiving such amazing grace from God and making such statements before the cross, I deserve hell, get up and look at your wife and say, I deserve rice cream. How does that happen? Do you understand what I'm saying? How do I go from I deserve hell to I deserve rice cream? Goodness, in heaven, I'm going to be like, can you just, let's just not talk about that one. We're not going to talk about that one. What is your rice cream? What is it that you tend to worship so you do, you want and you deserve and so you fight and you quarrel? And it could be a good thing. Rice dreams a small thing. It could be I want better communication. I want better use of time. I want better management of money. Even adultery. How you handle adultery. Let's go to the big one. Must not be from pride. Now, this is strong words, I know. But Paul would say, do nothing. It doesn't mean that you don't address it. It doesn't mean that you don't involve others. It doesn't mean that you don't speak truth. It doesn't mean that you don't do the things that you can do to help change that. And it doesn't mean that you don't talk through the ideas of what does this mean for the future? What should I do? How do I uh, help promote love to my children in this situation. All this can come into play, but at the core of that, it can't be, I've had enough. Now, I know that it's hard to say these things. And I know my silly thing of rice dream. What good is, what what big deal is that? If if I was dealing with adultery, now let's talk about how you're going to be not selfish and how you're going to try to consider the welfare of your wife in this situation, even as you try to figure out what is most good for the children. Let's finish this little idea of humility of mind. Consider others better than yourself. 
So this thought, go back to Philippians 2, 3 to 5. This is the put on. This is what we're to do everything out of with all humility. It literally means lowliness of mind. I believe myself not worthy of all the good I've gained. And the cure for all the evils is lowliness of mind, is what McLaren Expository Commentary says. The cure for all evils is lowliness of mind. Think about this a minute. Um, The first sin in the garden, what was it? Wasn't it pride? Wasn't it doing things out of selfishness and vainglory? (laughs) And what was the first sin of the universe, right? Satan. Wasn't it pride? I will raise my throne above the throne of God. So if that is the cause of sin, as Augustine has said, sin has many children but one mama. He didn't say it that way. but He has one mother. You know what that mother is? Pride. So if sin has one mother, then living like Christ or the cure for pride has one mother and it's called humility. And God gives grace to the humble and he helps you be humble. Proverbs 13.10 Pride breeds quarrels. Three words. Proverbs 13.10 Pride breeds quarrels. So humility breeds what? Unity. Ability to see God work in and through you. So as a husband, the gospel is calling me not to make a decision about anything first and foremost out of what does Tim want, right stream, what does Tim deserve. I didn't even get into that discussion. Not to make my decisions because of what my personal development and dreams could achieve, but rather out of what is best and most welfare of my wife and children. Humbly asking them and evaluating and even asking for input from other godly men who are older than me, which is getting harder to find. I'm kidding. (laughs) Women, on the other hand, the gospel is calling you to not react to the failure of your husbands to do those things. To love you like Christ loves the church. So he's calling the husband to do one thing. Love like Christ loves the church. Humble yourself. Put your wife and children's welfare above your own. Figure out what would make them the happiest. And if you can, without disobeying God, then that's your will, God's will for your life. Go get it done. Talk it through. Pray it through. If you have a difference of opinion, go get another opinion from a godly person who you respect, who can talk into that. So you and your husband aren't operating out of selfishness, but out of wisdom, out of humility of wisdom, as James says. We can make good decisions that way. But women, on the other hand, you're calling. The gospel is calling you not to react to the failure of your husbands. He's going to, at times, be selfishly motivated in his decisions. What you must do first and foremost of those times is do nothing in response to your husband out of selfishness or conceit. You can necessarily need to get some direction at times, depending on how severe that is. These are radical, hard commitments to follow. And in case you haven't heard the radical side of it, I am going to get downright in the dirt of life now. You ready? Here it goes. This is a slide. As I Have I done anything more so this week out of I want or I deserve instead of the opposite? Here they are. Let's talk about financial decisions. And here's the two thoughts. 
this week or this month or recently? Have you denied giving in to a financial decision that your spouse would like to be like to make because of selfishness I want and I deserve? Uh, have you, instead of denied, let's use a different word, have you demanded to make a purchase? In other words, you say, I didn't demand. I just gave him the silent treatment, like me, for seven hours to Tennessee. That's still a demand. Do you understand? I'm still doing sin to try to get my way. It's rivalry. It's selfishness. Have you demanded to get a purchase, to make a financial decision out of selfishness I want and I deserve? How about uh, use of time? Uh, if, if you used your time differently than your spouse desired, now I'm not saying I ask my wife for a minute by minute how she would want me to spend my time, but I basically know things that she would like me to be, get doing, and sometimes she lets me know those things. Maybe you know a lot of those things, men and wife, same way. What, how would your husband like you to spend your time? This verse would say, uh, don't spend your time out of I want and I deserve. That's what we're saying. How much of that has happened lately? Um, did you deny, let's use that word deny, did you deny doing what you know your spouse would like you to do because you said, well, I want different and I deserve different? Did you demand your spouse do what you wanted them to do because you want and you deserve? Do you see where I'm going with this? This is the commandment. How about uh, accomplishing a task? A spouse's task list. Did you deny doing it because of selfishness and pride? I want, I deserve. Did you demand that they do it? Uh, let's get to a more difficult situation. How about physical intimacy? Both sides. Men, did you demand? And again, when I say demand, I'm not saying that you forced physical intimacy. I'm saying that you got very pouty. You got quiet. You gave cold shoulder because you're the husband and you deserve. Wives, on the other hand, did you deny because the glory of God? See what I'm saying? Or did we deny because I am not, I will not give my body to Him? I deserve better. You see what I'm saying? Now, see, I'm down in the dirt now, aren't I? I need to get out of there and just talk about Jesus, don't I? How about encouraging words? How many of you here would like your spouse... Don't raise your hand, actually. If your spouse was going to raise their hand, why don't you do it? Because they're not doing what you want. And spouses, if you wanted to be more encouraging, do you want to be more encouraging because you deserve it? Do nothing. Are you demanding that? See? Do you give them the cold shoulder and don't respond the way the Lord would have you respond? And then the last one, uh, sharing a concern. Did you bring up a concern with your spouse this week uh, because you wanted something and you deserved it and you're upset about it? Or did you bring it up because of humility of mind? Consider their welfare above your own. You can do that. You know, it seems foreign, doesn't it? Man, I would never bring up any concern if I couldn't do it out of I want it and I deserve it. Well, that's what Paul is saying. Do nothing out of that until you learn to do it this way. Humility of mind. Consider others better. Do nothing out of personal gain, but out of God's gain. 
Let, let the gain you get be from God. This is a hard sell. This humility was what, though, empowered Christian living in this passage. That humility. And what empowers humility is what Paul is about to do. And here's where we're going to end our time here today. The five steps of the humiliation of Christ. Because Paul goes there in verse 5. He says, look, what I'm telling you to do is this. Let this mind be in you. Or this attitude, which was what? In Christ Jesus. You are not obeying a command. You are imitating your Savior. In fact, you're not just imitating your Savior. You're actually attaining internal value. You are changing from one degree of glory to another. If I were to ask you, of all the people that ever lived in, the, in, in, in Earth's history, who is the most valuable? Who is the best? Who would you like to be like the most? Now I know we're in church. You've got to say what? Jesus, right? Why do we say that? Because there is nobody that you would rather spend time with if you really knew him. Well, God is giving you and me and this commandment the opportunity to become that kind of person. What is better than being that kind of person? Living with a spouse that's that way? What's better to be that person or live with the person that is that way? You, you decide. I'm going to tell you what Paul is saying. You be the person. You be the person that has the attitude and mind of Christ. And here's the five steps. Here is what Paul does. And this is a song form. I would like to see us do a song on this. I just haven't seen it yet. I thought about how we could do this. But this looks like an early church song. So I want you to think about that this song could have been sung in the worship services so that the motivation to do the command here could be fresh in the mind. Here it is, the humiliation of Christ. And here's what it says in the next slide here, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. We're going to say that's step one. We'll see that in a minute. But he emptied himself. We're going to say that's step two. Each one of these going a little lower. Taking the form of a bondservant, step three. Being made in the likeness of men, found in appearance as a man, step four. And then finally, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Step one. Next slide here. Step off your what? Step off your throne. Son, I have a great plan for our eternity and for your life. This is the Father speaking to the Son. Now, I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to put you above every other name. We're going to defeat death. We're going to defeat grave. We're going to defeat the devil. We're going to create unity. Unbelievable. It's going to, I, I can't help but think about how amazing the plan must have been uh, as the Father and Son devised this great plan to glorify the Son. He said this, but Son, you're going to have to step off your throne. He didn't grasp equality with God. How humble an act is seen, not necessarily in how, what low treatment you accept, but rather what high respect you deserve. Colossians 1.15, what respect did Christ deserve? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heavens and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created by him and for him. 
at Matthew 20:19. They mocked him, pulled at his beard, crammed a crown of thorns on his head, stuck a reed in his hand, put a robe on him, called him a king, spit on his face, mocked, scorned, ridiculed him. They nailed him to a cross, naked before the whole world. The glorious, sinless Son of God, humiliated when he should have been exalted, and he never retaliated. I can't imagine what would it have been like for him to suffer such humiliation. He deserved this, and he was treated this way. Now, you and I deserve what? Just a minute. Hell. And how are we, deserve, how are we treated? Maybe here? In Category 3 marriages, right? Category 4 marriages? Or Category 2? Category 1? Step off your throne. What supposed throne do you have, husband, wife? In light of their putting their welfare above yours, what throne do you have that makes it hard for you to do that? I'm the husband of this house. I am the wife. I'm your father. I'm your mother. After all I've done for you, see, I, what did you hear in there? I deserve. Just look for it next time you have a conflict. I deserve is lurking somewhere, usually. Vain glory. And here's the Savior stepping off his throne. So step off your throne, men. Step off your throne, women. And do what? Then what's the next step? Step two, let go of your rights. What did he do? He emptied himself. It wasn't just he stepped off his throne. He emptied himself. Before his father, all divine prerogatives laid aside. John 15:19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father do. What grand humility. What would it be like for us for a day just to do that? Father, I will do nothing today except what you call me to do. I will humble myself and consider others better like Jesus did for me. Jesus only opposed people when it was disobedience to God to do otherwise. He did not clear the temple because he had had enough for himself. He cleared the temple for the glory of God. We get angry most of the time because we want something and we believe we deserve it. We have to get back to our Christian roots here. Every day at the center, we counsel people in conflict. And to bring this out, this idea of stepping off your throne, letting go of your rights, is foreign to the ears of Americans, right? But again, I would say, what do we deserve in light of how we're treated? Impossible without the cross of Christ being cherished and being accepting the love of God and being consoled by it. Here's step three, though. It gets worse. Not only let go of your rights, but become their servant. Really, the word is slave, isn't it? A servant for others for God. A servant of God for others. Garden of Gethsemane, we hear all this. Dad, is this really the purpose of my life? It's hard. I don't want this. Can you do anything to change this? I don't want this. My will is to not go through this suffering. And if there's any other way, I want out of here. And many times we struggle in situations where a cross is put before us. Uh, We have to step down our throne and let go of our rights and serve the welfare of others at our own expense. And that is what a lot of uh, sacrifice is. And here Jesus hears and gives it to the entrust to the Father and says, Not my will, but yours be done. That's what we ought to be saying in our marriages to God. 
Not my will, but yours be done. So it gets lower and lower. He doesn't just step off the throne, let go of his rights, but he becomes a servant. How are you called to serve in your home? If there's a sacrifice to be made in your home, many times it's not the husband who does that in America. At least that's been my experience in counseling, is that it's often the wife who's sacrificing. It's not always. I know that. But the husband thinks he's sacrificing, and the wife then is often not speaking about the struggle she's having. But wives, when you're going through that, do you see that you are gaining the mind of Christ if you're doing it in light of the gospel and in light of the Lord? But husbands, if there's a sacrifice to be made, we shouldn't complain about it. I had one husband come in and he said, do you mean to tell me if my wife doesn't do her work in the day, I have to come home and do her work as well? And I looked at him and I said, did Jesus do your work as well? And he said, that's not fair. I said, I know. But it is truth. And we have to think this way. Step four, sympathize with their weakness. This maybe is the most difficult one. Jesus had to be made like men. And here's what Hebrews 2 says. He had to be made like his brothers in all things that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest. So he had to become like us to become merciful and faithful, to become the merciful, faithful high priest. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in all that he suffered, he suffered by sinful men, he's able to come to the aid of those who are Verse chapter Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize, but one who's been tempted in everything yet without sin. So he was able to sympathize with us, not just step off his throne, not just let go of his rights, uh, not just become the servant of those that he was in conflict with, but he was able to sympathize with our story. On the cross of Christ, Jesus made a statement of sympathy. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. I would say that's doing nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, considering those who are at the cross who crucified him better than himself. He looks out. Do you ever have those thoughts about your spouse when you're in a conflict? Father, I know my spouse is in sin, and I wish, and I know you see this. But overlook, I want to overlook this, Father. For they don't know what they do. Do you know that everyone has a story of how they got here? And it is two things. It's their life-shaping influences, okay? Shaping influences. Plus their depravity. Okay? Put those two things together and you know what you get? Each one of us. Life-shaping, certain father, certain mother... Certain experiences, traumatic, good, bad, ugly, or the even even the lady I talked about who lived in a mansion, that was a negative life-shaping influence or positive. It depends on how you look at it, right? Where does she go with that? Point is that all of us have shaping influences, and we have depravity. Now you take away the grace of God, and you've got First Corinthians 15:10. I am what I am by the grace of God. But let me ask you this: When you look at your spouse in their worst moments, Okay? And you want to 
to not step off your throne and you want to not let go of your rights and you want to not be their servant, you want to not sympathize, let me ask you this. If you had their life-shaping influences, would you turn out better than them still because, after all, you're innately more righteous? Would you turn out equal with where they are? Or would you, as Paul said, turn out as the chief of sinners and worse than they are? I'm not telling you to go home and judge your spouse with all this. I'm telling you in that moment when you want to just out of selfishness let them have it, and you go back to the humility of Christ and recognize without God's grace, you would be worse than your spouse in those days. Whether you complain about this, this, that, or the other, all those things, you have to sympathize with them. And that's what the call of the cross is in this passage. We are to sympathize. Doesn't mean minimize. Doesn't mean not address. But you cannot address a problem from a throne. You cannot address a problem like Christ from your rights. You cannot address a problem without being the servant of all properly. And you cannot address the problem without sympathizing with their weaknesses. And finally, the last step, it's the final one. There's no breaking point. It says this, that he humbled himself to the point of what? Guys, let me ask you, ladies, let me ask you, what is your point of breaking? What is your point of saying, okay, I am taking the gloves off, the gospel gloves off. I'm taking off humility and love, and I'm putting on selfishness and pride, and I'm going to go after it now. When do you do that? Jesus had no breaking point. Spit in the face, thorns on the head. You know what he was doing while he was up there? He was serving our need. And he was waiting. You know what he was waiting for? Verse 9, which is the next sermon. (laughs) We're not going to get into that, though. Therefore, God highly what? Exalted. Exalted him. Did you know that this formula of humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand and Him exalting us is exactly what we should expect God would do for us as well? And that's what we see in this next slide. Let's turn to this next slide, if you would. Expectations, where we started. What are you going to do with all those expectations? You don't have to get rid of all of them. But you have to humble yourself first under the mighty hand of God. You have to humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. You have to have the consciousness of the Lord there. You have to be comforted with His love. You have to think about the cross of Christ in those five steps next time you get into a conflict. And then humble yourself. Say, Father, I don't know exactly what to do, but I know what I'm not going to do is selfishness and pride. I'm going to give time here to think about what to do. I'm not going to react. I'm going to choose. I'm not going to act in conflict. I'm going to choose not to go into conflict. This is written by James, one of the disciples of Jesus. Where do you think he got this material? Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord in conflict, and he will lift you up. Where do you think he saw that happen? We know where he saw it. And so he uses, James here uses the best motivation And Paul is using it here, that the Lord Jesus humbled himself, and we're to humble ourselves in conflict. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, 
Do nothing out of selfishness and pride. I want, I deserve. But consider others more valuable than yourself. So what should you do with this? How should you apply this? I want to encourage you as you think about how do people change? How do people grow? They have to be renewed. When is the last time that you spent time prayerfully meditating on a passage that comforted you with the love of the gospel, the truth of Christ? I go for walks when I, like, when I meditate, and I call them worship walks. They never do any worship walks. I believe that feeds my soul. It helps me to have strength to love better. So meditation, I would encourage you, number one, meditate daily on these things. Take a passage, phrase by phrase, go on a walk. Here's how it would sound. Father, I heard this sermon this week. I'm going to take this verse that I've got in front of me here, and I pray that you'll speak to me as I walk around my block here. By the way, the Puritan said that uh, ten minutes of meditation is better than 50 sermons. Think about that a minute. I'm not saying sermons aren't important. I'm just saying, what do you do with those sermons? So here I'm on the walk. Father, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit. Please forgive me for the times that I have done that. And I know I do it more than I should. Please strengthen me with all humility. Uh, consider others better than yourself. Help me to do that. And then I get into the, the, the passage here. Let this mind be in you. Lord, I know that I have a lot of meditation and thoughts at times when I'm struggling at home. I wish this would happen different. I wish that would. And I know that you have answers and you may or may not give me those answers this side of heaven. But I pray that you will help me have the mind of Christ in me. Because of all the things you could give me, Lord, I know that the best thing you could give me is to become more like Jesus. I know that. When I look at the life of Christ, I know he is the most exalted one now in eternity. And you have given me opportunity to get insight into that. You have helped me through his humility. Now let me get back to my passage. Let this mind be in you. And I just go back and forth talking to God and talking about the passage. And this is something that we have to learn to do if we're going to be renewed. Meditation. Music assist it. Sermons assist it. Reading assist it. Memorizing scriptures assist it. Studying assist it. But it's not meditation until you're doing it with your mind before God in prayer. So let me pray for you as we close. And I pray that as a result of this, you will give all of your expectations to Him. And humble yourself, knowing He knows how to make you more exalted and more fulfilled, like He did Christ through humility. Father, I pray that you'll teach us how to do this in increasing measures as we learn to walk with you. Father, teach us to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. Teach us, Father, how to be consoled in your love through meditation. Teach us how to practically apply these truths through practical meditation as we look at our life, our challenges. Teach us how to step off our throne. Let go of our rights. Become their servant. Teach us how to sympathize 
And help us to do those things before we ever open our mouth in the context of dealing with our disappointments, our discouragements, and even the damage that can come. Help us to do that in Jesus' name.